I wasn't really a believer until, uni- until my years in college. And while I was uh, in Michigan, uh, I basically ended up, uh, yeah, didn't really understand the gospel until uh, finally I read this book by Tim Keller called The Reason for God, which you may have read. Uh, and that really convicted me of my, per- my personal sin and, uh, and showed me that Jesus was the answer for that. Um, and ended up uh, actually going to Grenoble for a, a last semester where I ran into my first campus ministry called the Feu in Grenoble. And uh, yeah, I just saw uh, Christians there who were living out their faith. Uh, and it was, re- it was really something that impacted me and made me eventually be interested in student ministry in France, which I've been doing now with my wife uh, for two years. So my name is Claire, or Claire in French. <laughs> Um, I grew up in France in, um, in a city close to Toulouse, and I went to Toulouse to study. That's when uh, I became a Christian, and that made me realize that my friends, the students around me, they knew nothing about the message that could save, save them. And so it became urgent uh, for me that they could uh, hear it. And since then, so it's almost 10 years ago, it's 10 years ago, um, I've been on staff with a crew in Toulouse uh, doing ministry. And yeah, I think it was two years ago. So you might have been here from 2015 to 2016. 17. Well, yeah. 17. <laughs> so yeah, I met Luke in 2016, December 2016, in my boss's living room because he, he wanted to know more about our ministry in France. And after the discussion, he was not only interested in joining us, but he was also interested in me. <laughs> and yeah, we got married last summer. It's almost a year ago. Yeah. And so we both... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, So we both uh, served together in ministry for a couple of years now with crew. Uh, We're transitioning to another ministry now uh, that's a little more connected to local churches in the area. Um, And uh, there's a lot more I could tell you about that ministry and how it's centered on the Word of God as well. And uh, but we're going to let this video behind us uh, tell you a bit more. And it was made by the team that we're going to be serving with in Grenoble. So a few minutes of listening to that, and you'll get to hear us again. Grenoble is it's a beautiful city nestled at the foot of the French Alps. It is such a great place to live that every year around 50,000 students from all over the world flock to its universities to study. This is where we are seeking to reach out to a maximum number of students from a maximum number of ethnic groups with the amazing news of the gospel. Allow us to introduce ourselves. We are a part of a campus ministry known as the FU. Situated right next door to the university, we want students to feel at home from the moment they step through our doors. We welcome numerous students throughout the week who come for various activities, ranging from Bible studies, to prayer breakfasts, to service projects, to preparing meals together. A team of full-time staff ensures the daily running of our ministry. They make time for students, prepare Bible studies, get involved in one-to-one discipleship relationships, look after our building, help organize meals, 
there really is no shortage of work to be done. This full-time team benefits from the help of interns. You are either preparing for full-time ministry or simply want some first-hand experience of mission in a university context. The team is also made up of gap year students and student leaders who help out with our weekly activities. The FIR acts as a bridge between the university campus and the local churches, and we seek to encourage every student to become a part of a local church community. The FIR is also supported by partner churches in the region, and it is our desire to support and equip them in their own mission to the student population. In order to accomplish all of this, we are 100% dependent upon donations. Our donors are mostly former students who have benefited from the FIR ministry, parents who have seen the impact the FIR can have on young people's lives, and also those who are excited about participating in a strategic opportunity to reach out to all nations with the gospel. We are conscious that all of these activities that we are involved in do not depend on us. The only one who can touch hearts, show grace and transform lives is God. This is why we seek to hand every aspect of our ministry over to him in prayer so that he is the one who is in control. We want to reach the maximum number of students possible with the gospel in Grenoble. In order to do this, we have some exciting projects for this ministry coming up in the near future. This means that we are looking to mobilize a team of prayers and givers from all over the world who want to be a part of this adventure with us. Whether you can offer financial support, prayer support, or come and be a part of our team, we want to hear from you. It is through people like you that God continues to glorify the name of his son, Jesus, on the campus of the University of Grenoble and to the ends of the earth. So I hope that gives you a little bit of a picture of the, the ministry we'll be involved in next year. Uh, I wonder which one makes, causes the feedback. Anyway, uh, but uh, basically, we're uh, as they mentioned, we are the bridge between local churches and the campus uh, uh, campuses of Grenoble. Uh, so there's not I, I don't know if you know, but there's about 0.77 percent of the population uh, that are even like go to an evangelical church. So that's a very small percentage, and it's very hard to reach certain groups, especially if they uh, don't live near a local church. And so our, part of our role is to bring, is to connect students with uh, the gospel and then to integrate them into a community where they can then grow and uh, become uh, disciples of Christ who will make other disciples. Uh, and so how are we going to do that? Actually, we are going to be living in that building that you saw at the end there, uh, the one that they kind of panned across a couple times. We'll be in the top floor of that uh, this year at least, and then we'll see kind of for the rest of the time. Uh, but we'll be taking care of the daily uh, running of activities uh, and divvying out re uh, cleaning responsibilities and stuff. And I'll also be involved in teaching uh, the Bible. There's, uh, we go through books of the Bible each week uh, and then also discipleship and evangelism. Yep. So I will be also part of it. I will disciple girls and do evangelism. And um, one of the ways we connect with students is through the food bank, um, we, there we meet uh, physical needs of the students, uh, but we also give them a chance to uh, get to know Christian students and also to hear the gospel and uh, get invited to those evenings where they can have a Bible presentation. Yeah. 
And so how can you, how can you, we usually do that, we pass them on the mic. Uh, how, uh, how can you guys be involved in helping us with this? Well, some of you already are uh, through prayer, prayer ministry. So we send out prayer updates a little less regularly these days because we've been moving all our stuff to Grenoble. Um, but we'll try to get back on those a little more regularly uh, to let you know who you can be praying for, specifically what the needs are, uh, and just to hear a little bit of news from us. And then secondly, if, you're, if God puts it on your heart to support our ministry, as many people in this church do and the church itself does, uh, then we'd also encourage you to talk to us afterwards. We have an iPad where you can legally now sign up for all of, the, our, uh, all of that stuff, either the newsletter or to give monthly. Uh, so there we are. So thank you so much for your support of Luke. Uh, he told me a lot of good things about this church, and I'm really happy that I get to know you. <laughs> and don't hesitate to talk to us afterwards. Oh, and sorry, if Emily, I, I heard that Emily, it's Emily's last, uh, last day here. I don't actually know Emily personally, because I think you came after I came, but she's going to be doing our last... Uh, or our reading for today. So please welcome her. So we'll be reading today from Acts 16, verse 7, to chapter 18, verse 22. Verse 7. And when they had come to Myasia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Myasia, they came to down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Simothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there down to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Verse 16. And we were going to the place of prayer. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of the salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned to her and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Verse 23. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. 
About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And, when they, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all that were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before him, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Chapter 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and providing that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the, the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. 16. Now while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some says, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they asked, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that, to, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and Im imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed, and all of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, 
mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to him, to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So it all started with a cough. Justin was a 30-something dad and uh, he liked to shoot some hoops with his friends you know, just to get out of the house a bit. And so you can imagine how annoyed he was when he realized he had a cough before the big game. Uh, he told himself, well, all I really need is maybe some tea and a good night's sleep. Things will be better in the morning. But the thing is, things weren't better in the morning. During the game, he was out of breath just after a few minutes of running. One of his teammates saw him struggling and said, Man, it must be your asthma again. All you need is a couple buffs of that inhaler. But that didn't help either. The days and months went by, and still he was having this trouble breathing. And finally, Justin decided to go into his local urgent care and get it checked up, or get a checkup. The doctor asked him for his symptoms and looked a little bit worried, and she said, you know, you should go in for an MRI and see what's up, just make sure it's nothing serious. But on his way out from the urgent care, his wife reminded him that they just planned a long vacation out of the state. She said, you know, you probably just have bronchitis. I've got some extra antibiotics, you can take those, and if you still have a problem, uh, we can see the doctor when we get back. But as he, when he got back from his month-long vacation, his condition was worse than ever. He was having pain just breathing, and so finally, Feeling a little bit scared, he finally made that appointment for the MRI. After doing his scan, he asked, uh, or his, the doctor called him into the, his office and closed the door, and he said, Mr. Williams, do you smoke? And, uh, and of course, Justin said, yeah, yeah, I'm, but, you know, just, uh, just socially, not very much. And the doctor sighed, and he said, you should have come here sooner. Then we might have been able to operate, but I'm afraid it's too late. You have cancer and it's terminal. Sometimes knowing what we really need is a life and death issue. Unless we realize our real problem in these cases, we can end up applying just quick fixes instead of the real cure and we can end up in a very, very serious and even deadly situation. Now, if that's the case for terminal lung cancer, I want to argue that there's, there's something that's even more important, important, a much more important need 
that we all need to be aware of, and we need to be aware of the remedy. That need is that we are in a broken relationship with our Creator. We're born this way, but we're also this way by choice. We rebel against Him. We want to be the King instead of the King of the universe. And the problem, and the reason this is more, even more serious than our example in the beginning, is that the consequences are not just for your health and life now, but for eternity. Those who continue to rebel against this God and those who do not have a way back to a right relationship with Him will spend eternity separated from Him in hell. That's exactly what the problem that Luke is dealing with in this, these chapters that we read from Acts 7, or 16, 7 to 18, 22. But Luke has good news. We just heard the bad news. We are under God's judgment. We are under God's judgment because of our rebellion and sin. But there's good news, which is that God's gospel is all we need. And it works. God's gospel is all we need, and it works. We're going to see that main idea in three headings. First of all, the gospel meets our greatest need. That's number one. The gospel, number two, the gospel is God's word. And number three, the gospel works. We're going to start with our first point. So the gospel meets our greatest need. We see in chapter 16, verses 1 to 7, which we didn't read, that that Paul the Apostle, one of Jesus' followers, has been putting together a missionary team. They are in, uh, in Turkey. This is their second missionary journey. They're a place they've been before. But now they want to go further west to spread uh, this message to the rest of the empire. And first of all, they try going southwest in verse 6. And then God tells them, no, you're not going to go that way. They try going north in verse 7. And, and again, the Spirit of Jesus says they will not go that way. And finally, in verse 9, Paul is asleep and he has a vision. He sees a man, a man from Macedonia, a, a region in Greece just across the sea. And he's, it, this man is standing there, it says in verse 9, and he's urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Then in verse 10, Paul had, after he's seen this vision, he immediately uh, decides that they're going to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us, us to this whole team of, of Paul's, including Luke, to preach the gospel to these people. What do you think when you hear the word gospel? I know that in this church we say that word a lot, and I hope it means something to you and something very important to you. How many of you have a, ha a landline? A landline phone, you know, one of those things that is connected to a wall so you can't walk around when you talk to people? <laughs> it's one of these things, but less convenient. And uh, how many of you who have a landline, wh what kind of people tend to call you on that landline? Yeah, telemarketers, right? And now how many of you, imagine who have a landline or imagine you have a landline, how many of you, if you came home from church today and that phone rang and you picked up and you heard that kind of like robotic voice, uh, would you like to hear about whatever? How many of you would spend like the next two hours just talking with that person? 
Why not? I mean, don't you want to have that all-inclusive Caribbean cruise? I suspect most of us would just hang out up immediately, or if we're really polite, we'd try to find a polite moment to do it and whatnot. But none of us would want to stay on very long. Why not? Well, because I think, I suspect that we don't think that the people who are talking to us on the other line have anything particularly important or urgent to tell us. Nothing that's going to be life-changing. It's probably, you know, a scam. There's probably a lot of uh, strings attached. And maybe, even as Christians, if you're a Christian here, you might come to think of the gospel a little bit that way, the main message of Christianity. Maybe it seems to have meant something a lot to you at one point in time, but now you're caught up in your life and the stresses and the responsibilities and, and just the, the things that you wonder, like, does the is the gospel really helping with this? Or can it help with this? I mean, yeah, I was saved by the gospel, but what about today? What difference does it make for me today? And maybe you start to, doubt, to think of it a bit like these telemarketing calls where it's the thing you hear repeated each Sunday, but you think, but this isn't really what I need. Perhaps uh, you wouldn't stay on the line with a telemarketer, but... Imagine a different scenario. Imagine that someone has called you and told you that a family member has been kidnapped and they have directions of where to find that person. How many of you would stay on the line then? The question that we have to face is what kind of a message is the gospel? Because that's going to determine what our response will be. What's going to be the right response? And how important is it for us? Now, if you look at the man in Paul's vision in chapter 16, verse 9, I think he gives us a clue as to what kind of message this is. We see him standing there again, urging and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. What kind of a message is this? Help us. In verse 10, Paul again interprets this as a call to preach the gospel. And so clearly he's seeing that there is a problem that only the gospel message is going to fix. And this is something that is very urgent and something that's very, very important for these people who have never heard it. But what does the problem look like in real life? I mean, what about in real lived experience? Well, luckily Luke gives us three portraits. He paints three portraits of three real people, their need, and how the gospel answers that need. First of all, we're going to see a successful religious businesswoman. Her name is Lydia, and we see in verse 11 that Paul and his uh, team, so they, they make their way from Turkey uh, to Greece. They travel around a bit, and they end up in Philippi. And since Paul's missionary team always starts by preaching to Jews and non-Jews in the synagogue first, uh, they go around looking for a place where that group would worship. There's no synagogue, so on Saturday they go out, and in verse 13, they see a, a group of women that are praying uh, to the God of Abraham by the side of the river. And then Luke tells us in verse 14, uh, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Who is this woman? What's she like? Well, in her day, she would have been like the shining picture of prosperity and success. I mean, she's living in this male-dominated society, and Lydia is running her own luxury clothing business, purple cloth. She's traveling the world. 
she's also, though she's not just financially successful, she's not just achieved her dreams, but she's also someone who's, you would say, religious. She worships the one true God of Abraham in verse 14. And she, she's the lady who comes to church service. She's the lady who is on the committees. I don't think we have too many committees here, but if you had church committees, there you go. Uh, and she's the one who, like, at the end of the service will say, yeah, that, would, that really spoke to me. But the truth is, there is something missing. It's really surprising if you look at the second half of verse 14. It kind of comes out of the blue. You see, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Lydia is not the kind of girl, uh, lady that we would share the gospel with easily, would we? I mean, she looks so put together, we, we'd probably say to ourselves, she doesn't have any needs. Maybe we would say even like, if our theology was a bit off, we might say, well, you know, she's experiencing God's blessing, right? She is rich. But the reality is that Lydia, Lydia has a serious problem. Her heart is closed to God. This woman desperately needs her heart to be opened in verse 14. Outwardly, she looks completely put together, right? She's maybe even a little bit intimidating. But inwardly, she's exactly like this man who was in the vision back in verse 9, standing there urging and pleading inside, help me, help me. Was this maybe you? Maybe is this you now? Perhaps you are the success story of your family. Maybe you're the person who made it where the rest failed. Maybe you're the one who makes others proud, the one that people look up to, who worked your way out of a tough situation. Maybe you are successful. Maybe you are someone who others look to as sort of like when, when you have to pray around the dinner table, you're the one they look to. Maybe... You look successful and completely put together from the outside. But deep down, if you haven't trusted in Christ, you know, I believe you know, that it's not enough. I mean, you see your, your selfishness. You see the contradictions, the facade you put on in front of other people. While inside, you know that you don't want people to see what's going on in there. You don't want that to be broadcasted. And you know that ultimately, even though you try to do your best, you always feel like you never quite hit the mark. You never quite do well enough. What Lydia desperately needed was to be changed. And not just so that she could be an, somebody who lives with integrity, someone who is, uh, is more respected or more respectable, but be, so that she can hear the message. You see that? Her heart is open, not just for her to be a better person, but so that she can receive a message from Paul, the message of the gospel. In fact, without God working in her life, she would be completely lost. She needs her heart to be open so that she can realize that her righteousness will never be enough. Her achievements will never make, set her in a right relationship before God. Nothing she does Nothing she's become will be enough. But fortunately, someone else has done that in her place. The Lord Jesus is God himself who came to earth and lived a life that was perfect. 
He achieved everything that we are unable to achieve. And he gifted us to those who trust in him in faith. He gifts us his righteousness, his righteousness, all his achievements before God become ours if we trust in him. But Lydia isn't the only one who needs help. I need help with my voice, first of all. The next person that we meet in this story, and it's still in chapter 16, is a young slave girl. We see her in chapters 16, six, uh, verse 16 to 18. Here's how Luke introduces her. As we were going to the place of prayer, where the ladies are there, uh, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of, dis- of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us in crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, you know, us in the 21st century, we are very conscious of something that is very important, which is human bondage, human trafficking, human slavery, different ways in which people are in bondage physically and economically and all that. And that's a very good thing, and I think Christians have not been conscious enough about that in the past. But I wonder if we are just as conscious of people's spiritual enslavement. Are we just as conscious of the people who are enslaved around us? Maybe you know what it's like to be spiritually enslaved. I think if you've ever not trusted in Christ, if you were ever born and lived your life, you probably know something about spiritual bondage. The hidden addictions, the online shopping sprees, the craving for other people's approval, just to be seen and recognized and seen as important. Maybe like this slave girl, you had even made a living off of your slavery. I mean, she, she's a fortune teller, but if you've ever been a, uh, economically dependent on your sin, you know that it just leads to you being used. Maybe like her, you desperately needed a deliverance that only Jesus can bring. That's what we see in verse 18. Paul turns around and commands the evil spirit inside the woman. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And the very next second, the spirit was gone. Just like that. She's free. Free. Jesus didn't come, you know, just to deliver us from the penalty of sins. Now that's very, very important. Without that, we lose the gospel. Not just, but he didn't just come to deliver us from the penalty, but also from the power of sin. Do you know what that means? It means that we're no longer, if we trust in Christ, we are not a slave to Satan or sin. We don't owe the flesh anything. He delivered us, yes, from the judgment of God, but he also delivered us from the power of sin in our lives. And don't misunderstand me, that doesn't mean that we're perfect. Just like Joel mentioned earlier, we still struggle with sin. But the point is, it is a struggle. It's not bondage in the same way that it was before. The last person we're going to meet is a Philippian jailer. In verse 19, we see that the, fall, uh, the fallout of the situation where uh, 
Paul has delivered this woman from slavery. She's no longer any good to her masters. And so they, they work to have the city officials basically club them and then send them and put them in prison and tell the prison guard to watch them carefully. Verse 23. That night then Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns around midnight when suddenly this earthquake rocks the jailhouse, kind of like Elvis Presley. If anyone's old enough to know what that is. Anyway. All the, and all the doors swing open, all the chains fall off, the prisons ostensibly are, prisoners are free. And then in verse 27 of chapter 16, the jailer wakes up in a start, he looks around, sees that all of the doors are open, and he assumes the worst, he assumes that everyone has just booked it, and he knows that what that means is the next day at dawn, he's going to be judged before these magistrates. He's going to be condemned to death, and so he decides to kind of expedite the process himself. He draws his sword, unsheathes it, points it to himself, and he's about to thrust himself through when he hears someone yell out in the dark in verse 28, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. That's Paul's voice. Then in verse 29 and 30, the jailer calls for lights. He rushes in, he, and trembling with fear, he falls at the feet of Paul and Silas, and he brings them outside, and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer, I think, figured out what his real problem was. A few minutes ago, he was afraid that he was going to be judged by some magistrates the next day, that he was going to be condemned in front of their tribunal, condemned to death. But now, after Paul saved his life, he realizes that God's judgment is what he should be really afraid of. Probably the, the earthquake was a little bit of a hint that these guys actually were onto something. They had been preaching this, the, uh, God's sin and judgment for a while now, they're living in a city that's 50 times smaller than Baltimore, so I'm sure he's heard this message. And now, the only thing that he can think of is, how can I be saved? I've just, you know, thrown God's messengers into prison. I'm on the wrong side, and I need to be saved. And what does Paul and what do Silas answer him in verse 31? The answer to his biggest problem is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And that's just what the jailer does. He prays and trusts in Christ and he never ever had to fear God's judgment and condemnation again. Why? Because one day, 2,000 years ago, God became a man he lived a perfect life, as we already said. He also conquered Satan, sin and death, and their power. And he also died in our place. He took the guilt that we deserved. Everything we deserved was what he bore on himself. And everything that he deserved by his perfect life is what he gave us. And that is part of the gospel message. And it's the gospel message that saved this man. So three real stories, and all of them hammer home the same point. The gospel, God's good news message, meets our greatest need. But secondly, how do we know that it's true? 
how can we trust this message? Isn't it just another opinion? There are a lot of different opinions these days on religious matters. What if we all need something slightly different from God? I mean, that might be good for us here in this church, right? Or maybe just for me individually. But how do I know that other people have exactly the same need? And that it's their greatest need? And that only this gospel can answer it? These are questions that we ask ourselves in, our, in this society today. How can we be sure that this gospel message answers our greatest need? Well, I think one thing that will help is to figure out, again, what kind of a message we're dealing with. It would help to know, in fact, that the gospel is God's word. The story continues. The day after the earthquake, the the city officials then release Silas. They end up filing a complaint. This is verse 35, uh, probably to protect the church there, and then they go visit this church plant. And then by verse 40, they end up leaving and going on their way to Thessalonica, another city in Greece. Once they arrive in this new city, Luke tells us in chapter 17, verses 2 to 4, read this with me. And Paul went in, and, and as was his custom, and on, uh, sorry, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and provide, uh, proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ and some of them were were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women so it's our first little episode in chapter 17 and then there's another one later on Paul and Silas decide to move on to the city of Berea in chapter 17 verses 10 to 12 and when they arrived, they went to, into the, Jew, the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness, eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women and high-standing uh, men as well. In both of these episodes, we see people who are being saved and transformed, like we already saw in chapter 16. But let's not miss what Paul is using as his main tool in these messages. It's the Old Testament scriptures. Why does Paul use the the scriptures in Thessalonica to talk about who Jesus is? Why do the Bereans in this next section have to start an Old Testament Bible study to check what Paul is saying? Why does Paul quote the Old Testament when he could just say, Jesus changed, this is how Jesus changed my life? The answer is that the gospel is not a human idea. The gospel is not a human idea. It's not the Christian Cocoa Puffs on an endless uh, aisle of spiritual cereal. It is God's word to us. God's only word, and it is the word that is authoritative to tell us what our real problem is and what we need to fix it. And that's what, that's what Luke keeps telling us. If you look at chapter 16, verses, verse 32, what does it say? And they spoke the word of the Lord. 
to him. He's talking about the gospel. This is a synonym he's using here. Uh, to him and all who are in his house. In chapter 17, verse 11, they received what? The word with all eagerness. And in verse, uh, chapter 17, verse, six, uh, verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul and Berea, the word of the Lord, the word of God, the word. Luke uses that probably more than any other way of talking about the gospel because he is hammering home this point that this is God's word to us. This isn't something we thought up. This isn't something we voted on. This is something that God has revealed to us. But maybe you're saying, wait a minute. Paul's talking to Jewish people in the synagogue, isn't he? In Thessalonica and Berea. And what about the speech in Athens in chapter 17, verses 20 to 21? Don't we see Paul like not quoting scripture, even quoting you know, poetry? Doesn't this mean that Paul actually does change his message? He changes his gospel according to who is in front of him. So the gospel is actually relative. It kind of just molds itself to whatever people's desires and needs are. Well, I'd like to look a little bit closer at this, uh, what happens in Athens, and we'll see if that's really the case. Is it one same gospel, or are there a few? In chapter uh, 17, verse 16, we see Paul is appalled as he gets into this city in Athens, and he sees just idols everywhere, and he is angry is, all, is the word that's used there. And what does he do about it? In verse 17, Chapter 17, verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So the first thing we already know, he's been doing that in Berea, Thessalonica, and a bunch of other places before. He goes into the, the Jewish synagogue and shows them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who meets our greatest need. But what's he doing in the marketplace? Now he's out in public and talking to people in the street. What is his message there? Well, we see in verse 18, it says that he, Paul, was preaching what? Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus and the resurrection. Isn't that exactly the same message, essentially, that he is preaching to, in the synagogues? He isn't adapting himself in his message to people's felt needs. He is giving them the same gospel that he gave the others, the message of Jesus who died for our sins and was resurrected for us that we might be saved. In fact, Paul's message in a sense is so badly, if you want to use the word contextualized, I know that's a debated word, but it's so badly adapted to where he is that they are confused. Like, what is this babbler talking about? They think that the resurrection and Jesus are like two different gods. And so they end up bringing Paul with this weird message that they've never heard before in front of the Areopagus, this, this council of philosophers in chapter, and that's where we find him in chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. And he, what does he tell these guys? Now he's in front of another group of philosophers, educated guys, is he going to give them some kind of uh, sort of a sanitized gospel? Well, look what he says. In the beginning of his speech, he tells them, first of all, that they're ignorant. These guys with PhDs. He says, he talks about this God who they're ignorant of. 
He's respectful. He's not disrespectful. And he acknowledges what he can. They're religious. Yeah, that's true. But they're ignorant of who this true God is. And now Paul is going to tell these guys with PhDs what they need to know to be saved. God, God, he goes a little bit further in the story. Instead of, uh, so he doesn't talk about Jesus and the Messiah as the Messiah right away because they don't know the Old Testament. He has to go all the way back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis, and tell them about the Creator in verses 24 and 26. He tells them that God has come to tell them, or God has, is the one who made the universe. God has made the universe and everything in it. He's made them as well. They depend on him. They're not autonomous. They don't get to live in their own circle of reality where everything depends on them. They depend on God for life and breath and everything else. They're creatures in his world, and everything they have comes from him, which means what? Well, that they're accountable. They're accountable to this God. And he, he says then in verse 29, he talks about the consequences, or not the consequences, yeah, he talks about, first of all, their sin. So again, the bad news of their sin. He says, being then God's offspring, so those who are made in God's image, he's kind of translating the word into their language, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul is saying that the Athenians have chosen to make themselves God instead of, and worship them instead of worshiping the God who made them. He's, pointing, he's putting a finger on their idolatry, saying this is your guys' sin. And this is a problem that has consequences. We see that in verse 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, change directions, Stop going in this direction of idolatry. Turn to Jesus in faith. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And on this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. Ignorance doesn't get you off the hook. Because God, not only has he revealed himself in creation, not only are we guilty because we depend on him for everything that we have, and yet we never thank him. We, no, we don't live our lives for his priorities. We don't seek his will. Not only that, but now God has also revealed himself in the Lord Jesus. And so there is no longer any excuse for not turning to him. To be saved, we must repent. We must believe in Jesus. We must do that. Otherwise, we will be judged. The gospel is our only hope. So you see, the message is the same. It is translated into their language because he loves these people and he wants them to understand. But it is the same message all throughout and in our whole Bible. It's the message that Jesus came to live a perfect life, to die the death we deserve, to defeat Satan's sin and death. So we've seen that God... That the, sorry, that the gospel means our, it meets our greatest need, number one. It is the word of God, his word to us, his only one. And now we're going to see that God's gospel works. How many of you are tired of things that don't work? I'm, I'm going to give you exhibit A. This is a, it's a Samsung. I've learned over the years that Samsungs do not work. I, I had a, an iPhone for one year and I was like, 
phones can work. It's crazy. So I bought this one because it was, it's an S7. I had an S3 and it was slow. And, I, and they told me, they told me, if you get the S7, it's fast. It's really fast. After a couple, it was like fast for a couple days. And now it's been slow for two years. I don't like things that don't work. And probably you don't either. And maybe you've started to wonder sometimes in your life if the gospel really works. I mean, you think of that coworker that you pray for, that you've shared the gospel with, your family member, your friend, who just every time just kind of gives you a blank stare. He says, I don't care, man. Tell me something that I really need. And you start to think, Should I, is this really the message that we need to be giving them? Shouldn't we be looking for something that's more relevant? Or maybe you just are tired and you're just thinking, you know, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep saying the same thing and praying the same thing. I mean, does this gospel message work? Maybe for me, yeah, but maybe for others, it just doesn't. Or maybe you're somebody who is in the opposite case and you just feel like you're a complete failure. You've failed at other things in life and you just see the gospel as another kind of pipe dream. People talking about changed lives, people talking about forgiveness, freedom, a relationship with God, and you just think, you know, God helps those who help themselves, and I know I can't do that. I've tried, and I can't do it. This gospel is not going to work for me. Well, if talking about the power of the gospel discourages you or makes you, leaves you just feeling a bit jaded, I want you to consider what Jesus tells Paul at the end of this section that we read in, in chapter 18. Paul arrives in Corinth in chapter 18, verse 1, and in, in verse 4, he, he finds himself in another synagogue, preaching the gospel, same gospel again, showing them arguing from the scriptures. But the pushback just comes hard until finally, finally he's just had it. He says in verse uh, 6, he He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. And he goes next door and just, yeah, he's just, he's probably, it doesn't describe exactly what he's feeling inside, but I imagine you can picture it. He's been pouring his heart out week after week, just trying trying to tell these people who are his, you know, his his brothers, uh, and and he's trying to tell them about something that, is going to save them from eternity apart from God. And it's just, just no listening. Nobody cares. And so I think he really needed, actually, what uh, Jesus tells him just a few verses later. In verses 9 to 10, Jesus appears to him in the second vision, and he says, don't be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent for two reasons. First, I am with you. Interesting how much Jesus emphasizes that when it comes to mission and evangelism. I'm with you. That's what he said in Matthew 28, 20, I believe, where he, uh, he, he says that he is with us even to the end of the age as he's sending out his disciples to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. He's with us. But secondly, but secondly, he says, no one will attack you or to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. Why is this supposed to be encouraging? What is Paul saying in this, section, this second part? 
Well, I think he's reminding Paul that the gospel always does what Jesus wants it to do. The gospel always does exactly what Jesus wants it to do. It's like God's promise in Isaiah 55, 11. It says, my word shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. He's not saying it'll succeed to do things that God has not intended. That's why we can share the gospel and sometimes people will not come to Christ. But it's not because the word doesn't work. And since Jesus promised his disciples in chapter 1 verse 8 that we, that he will be, we will be his witnesses until the ends of the earth and that he'll be with us, then we can be sure that God is continuing. Amen. He is continuing to speak through his gospel, to bring fruit through his word, and not just automatically, but through our speaking, through our words. Isn't that an encouragement for us to go out and share this good news? The gospel will always do exactly what Jesus wants it to do. So if you're feeling discouraged in your witness, please let that sink in. You're not guaranteed that every person you want to be saved will be saved, but you are guaranteed that you have a gospel that can change any heart. It can open the heart of the most self-righteous person. It can bring anyone to their knees. And you know that because it's done that to yourself if you trusted in Jesus. And if you are someone who feels too far gone, and you feel like this gospel is just for good people, not for people like me, And I want you to remember that salvation does not depend on you. That's Jesus' message. It does not depend one ounce on you and your capabilities and what you've been through or who you are. It depends on Jesus, what he has done in living the life that you should have lived, but you don't manage to live. Dying the death that you know you deserve, but that he took in your place. And he is able to set you free. The gospel meets our greatest need, and it works. I urge you guys, just at the end, what else do you need to know to make this gospel known? You know, God has a people. He has a people, like in in the verse that we were just reading, in verses 9 and 10, Jesus says that he has a people in this city, He's talking there about Corinth, but I believe that God has more people in this city of Baltimore, in the city of Grenoble, in Chiang Mai, in many other cities in this world. And he's planning, and he has decided he will use our witness to reach these people for Christ. Will we do it? Will we trust in his word as his very word, as the real answer to our problems and everyone else's? and a word that really works. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this word, and thank you that you're able to use it and that you have already used it to transform a community here in Baltimore, Lord. Thank you that your your word works in any culture, in any context, because it all depends on you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for having mercy on us, and Father as well, for being willing to accept Jesus' righteousness and his death so that we might receive all that he deserves. We don't deserve it, Lord, and we want to live our lives 
as missionaries on this earth, Lord. Because, not because it saves us, Lord, but because it's our privilege, because we get to be part of your work. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.